Hello and welcome to your weekend morning trip. A more languid, laid-back, slow listening podcast with me, your host Shivraj Prashad. I'm hoping you will add us to your weekend playlist and give us a listen. Love is love. Love is love. On September the 6th, 2018, A five-judge bench of the Supreme Court read down Section 377, liberating millions of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Indians from a 160-year-old Victorian-era law. And then, about three weeks later, the highest court struck down another Victorian law, criminalizing adultery. Then, lifted a bar on women of menstruating age from entering the Sabrimala Temple in Kerala. judgments that expanded on issues of gender identity sexual choice and the dignity of every indian i present to you sex and the supreme court with saurabh kirpal a lawyer at the center of the argument against 377 and editor of that anthology of essays of the same name and i am proud to say a close friend Saurabh, it's really so good to connect with you on my weekend playlist. Thank you for having me on uh, Shivraj, and I can't think of a better podcast than to be on rather than yours. <laughs> Thank you so much, Saurabh. Now, I read the book twice. What an expansive book! You bring together legal luminaries with their insights, lawyers who fought the cases with different perspectives, and critically, others, people like us, with personal narratives and accounts. But personally, sort of for you, what was your purpose for putting this out, Shivraj? I always felt that the layperson, when they read about the law in India, they get all their information from the media, and the media itself is not exactly legally literate, and certainly doesn't care to or purport mm-hmm. to be legally literate. So there is, I think, a gap in the knowledge of the common person mm-hmm. as to what exactly the court decides. and the decision making process and the impact those judgments have on the lives of people so i really wanted to bridge that gap and to get people who have legal knowledge so lawyers judges and very eminent people to write about issues about sex gender and sexuality write it for the common person in a language that they could understand without dumbing it down too much right the idea is to present that what the court has decided and give it context in a legal framework but also to have articles and essays written by people like ritu and zainab and keshav and namita who are people who have lived through these experiences that these judgments mean something to them so i really wanted to give a context both to the legal aspect of these judgments and the impact they've had on people's lives and as regards the choice really of the subject i think as you rightly said in your introduction this was a case of a series of judgments which had come out at that point of time which all related to sexuality gender really that was my idea is to make something which is hither to inaccessible to the person to the lay person accessible to them 
Yes, because when I reported on the courts, there's so much in all these judgments, there's so much content, it's very difficult to understand the impact. But what's really important is that the highest court in the last five or seven years has really placed us, the individual, and not the state or other actors at the center of decision making. Exactly, and that brings us to the issue of this book. When I talk about sex and the Supreme Court, we talk of sex in a very generic sense, right? Sex is not just, of course, the distinction between male and female and the normal idea of sexual discrimination. But this idea of sex really embodies a more important concept, the idea of the individual and the idea of the dignity of the individual, really. Because sex is then an attribute as well, which is mutable as well as immutable. So, for instance, the idea of sexuality forms very much part of sex. The idea of gender forms very much part of the sex. But at the end of this, what is it that we're really trying to do? We're trying to protect the constitutional rights that people have. And the constitutional rights people have ultimately all focus on the individual rights that a person has, right? The entire part three of the Constitution of India, the fundamental rights chapter, has one sole purpose. The idea to enable an individual to recognize to the fullest potential of their identity, the ability to live the life that they wish to live with dignity. So in that context, it was important to talk about what is the distinction really between an individual and their dignity and the opposing mm-hmm. force. And what the opposing force is mm-hmm. the force of the community, the force of religion, the force of the state. So really there is a, a conflict in our cases, and all these cases are an example of that, of a tug of war really between the rights that the individual claims for him or herself, be it sexuality or sex, and the contrary claims. Now, whether they're valid or not is another point, but the claims are nevertheless there Mm -hmm. by religious groups, for instance, in the Shabrimala matter, where the religious group says, it is our right to forbid women from entering, vis-a-vis the right of the woman to Mm -hmm. say, no, I want to enter. So in all of these cases, it was important that the judgment ultimately favored the rights of the individual as against the claims of the community. And that is really in consonance, I think, with what the Constitution of India also proclaims, which is that it pertains and puts the individual at the center of the constitutional Mm. firmament. And the idea of dignity and autonomy is one of the major threads running through the book. But before we get down to how you bring that to us, it is important, I think, for my weekend playlist listeners to really understand who Saurabh Kirpal is. Tell us more. I'm a lawyer who is a gay lawyer who's been practicing in the Supreme Court for well over 25 years. I've argued matters for people from across the ideological spectrum, people of the right, people of the left. So I suppose a lot of people on either side of the spectrum don't trust me thinking that how could you have done that? I honestly believe that the duty of any lawyer is first to represent the client regardless of their ideology. And more importantly, I also believe that if we don't engage with the left or the right, then I think we lose a very substantial portion of the people we wish to convince and the people we wish to talk about and the people we wish to carry along. So I am, I would like to say, a centrist gay lawyer I've been living with my partner for 19 years. We live in Delhi in a joint family. Mummy and daddy live 
on the ground floor and the first floor. They very kindly allowed us to make our little love nest on the second floor. And in all ways, we're a, a good, proper, traditional Punjabi joint family. And that's, <laughs> that's who I am. And of course, I am the author and the editor of this anthology that I'm rather proud of, Sex and the Supreme Court, that you've talked so kindly about, Shivraj, and what, what we're talking about today. Now, something that comes up in the writing is that often the deeply personal is also political. The courts may pass judgment, but it is another matter of societal norms where people catch up. That which is deeply personal is, of course, political. And this brings us back to the idea of the public-private divide. Is That's how I would see it is Mm -hmm. that the distinctions between the personal and the political are rather more tenuous than we'd like to think. For instance, in the idea of sexuality, when we talk of what is deeply personal, is is a political idea. Initial arguments on the defense, which were raised before the High Court in 2009, which led to the judgment of the High Court striking down Section 377, was the idea that really a person should have autonomy and their personal private decisions should not be subject matter of of the state and the state to interfere in their mm. personal choices but of course that's not entirely true because to be gay or to be a homosexual is also a political statement mm. because i don't want to be a gay person just in my bedroom i want to be a gay person mm. expressing my views my ideas out there in the open maybe making alliances mm. with other oppressed groups, maybe people of the subordinate castes, women, whatever else. So really the idea of the individual having their identity as defining them is very much tied in to the idea of their political persona and how they choose to project it. That's how I would really equate or relate that which is deeply personal with that which is political. Really, ultimately, people play out their lives in society. And these judgments have impact only when people are trying to live their lives. And the way Mm. the judgment of the Supreme Court or even the guarantee of equality in the Constitution for women is a dead letter unless it is accepted by society or accepted by culture and actually ingrained in society, it really won't have meaning. Mm. So I think there is some kind of a symbiotic relationship really between the personal and the political between the judgment of the court and how society and culture changes it. Because you say also in your question, uh, Shivraj, that will societal norms catch up to it? I think societal norms often do catch up because of the moral authority of the court. But since I'm talking of symbiosis, it's also the reverse. Sometimes the court takes Mm -hmm. time to catch up to what society thinks. And I think the 377 judgment was just one such instance. I honestly believe society had actually moved on in 2018 and was quite ready for uh, 377 to have been done away with. And the court was five years late in recognizing that. So who catches up with whom? That's an open question. I'm not going to beat around the bush, Sora, because you are an old friend. And I remember two years ago, you being offered a judgeship. And this is why I asked that question just before this. I know you've spoken to the press about this, but I want to hear directly from you. Why hasn't it happened? Is it because you are an openly gay man? Well, the first thing I'll correct you on is that I was offered judgeship not two years ago, but three years ago. So the wait wait has been even longer, three years. Mm. Look, the problem with the appointment of judges to the higher judiciary in our country, and I must point out that I was asked to be a judge of the Delhi High Court, 
is that there is a concept of the collegium system where mm-hmm. the senior judges sit together and decide as to what is or who is not worthy of being appointed as a judge of the high court or the supreme court and really we don't know exactly what's going on in their mind having said that india is a rather leaky system and nothing stays mm-hmm. secret for very long so in my personal case the high court recommended me without any demur it was a consensus unanimity between the collegium the matter was sent to the supreme court and the supreme court can take a decision one way or the other right they can say yes he is worthy of being appointed or he is not worthy of being appointed and that's exactly mm-hmm. what happened with eight of my other colleagues so nine names had gone simultaneously and for the other eight the decision was taken saying certain people are worthy of being appointed and they were in fact appointed and certain other people were not but in my case something rather more curious happened the matter was deferred once then it was deferred the second time then it was deferred the se- third time and it still lies deferred so it's pending on the file of the chief justice of india and his two senior colleagues and then in the press sometime later an article came and since then there's been a deluge of uh, such media reports that the reason for this deferment is the idea that my partner who is a swiss national mm-hmm. is a foreign national and it is not possible allegedly for the government to find out his antecedents etc even though of course he's been living in india for 19 years and of course the ib report also does mention the fact that i am a gay man so that's not a secret either and the media reports say that they found this out through facebook and other social media of mine which that's so yes, odd yes. we require to disclose it in the form by the way your social media and i did i have nothing to hide i've lived my life openly and freely and mm-hmm. i saw no reason that if i was going to become a judge why i should hide that uh, that was never my intention mm-hmm. that was never my desire i was accepting judgeship for the reason of seeking equality for uh, the lgbt community for the queer community so there was no point in me hiding it now if i were a straight man i'd marry my partner and then i mm-hmm. wonder what they'd say because really it's not without precedent that there has been a foreign partner for a supreme court judge justice mm-hmm. vivian bose one of the greatest judges of our supreme court had a english wife and our current foreign minister mr jay shankar has a japanese wife so if that's not a security threat then i don't see how my partner would be a security threat i don't think there's any doubt in my mind at least that the real issue was the fact that i happened to be something other than a straight man and how does that make you feel saurabh at one stage relieved and disappointed really because i do believe mm. the task of being a judge is a rather tough one i think we become quite used to uh, running down judges and criticizing them without understanding the pressure that they're under mm. they do a lot of work a lot of good for very little money and with tremendous pressure on time i think a average judge works 12 to 14 hours a day probably more than any lawyer so there was relief look i i accepted the offer to become a judge not because i was dying to give up a rather cushy life as a lawyer but as sort of a social responsibility i can't complain about inaccessibility to justice if i'm not willing to put myself out there right so that was one reason but more importantly i felt that as a member of the queer community it was important for me to accept judgeship so that i could bring diversity to the bench 
and bring a certain empathy that I think certain judges at time lack. Equally, it was important, I thought, for the general public to know that it was possible mm. to be a gay person and to be on the bench and you'd be the same as anybody, if not better. And most importantly, for the queer community to have some kind of a, a, a member of their own community reach the highest, represent absolutely it. representing them so they could feel pride in themselves, right? Because that is the biggest problem for the queer community. And that's why we have mm. pride marches is because there's a deep sense of shame everywhere. And if mm. we need to mm. fight against discrimination, we first have to address the demon of shame within ourselves. And one of those ways is to have uh, people you can look up to. So, so therefore, mm. there is disappointment that I could not have that opportunity to be that role model for the gay community. Now, back to the book, Saurabh, and, and clearly you've structured it so well. And it all ties in with what you just said. In the first section, Sex and the Individual, you take up the issue of autonomy and gender identity by explaining the history of the LGBTQ community struggle. And we've discussed that already. And there's that fabulous essay by Justice Lokur on the transgender question and then those personal narratives. It's in the next section, the question of personal choice. You elaborate on interfaith marriage. You bring in Kap and Chais. Then there's that wonderful essay on adultery. But really, what shocked me here as a lay person was the extent to which we seem to have been okay with the paternalistic and patriarchal practices where women... And I never really understood this before I read the book. Was seen as chattel with no personal agency? Well, I don't think it should surprise you because what you must remember is that all of these cases were dealing with the Indian Penal Code, which was drafted in 1860. So what was the idea of women and the power of women and the patriarchal structure in 1860 has been frozen in the Indian Penal Code ever since. And that's what was applied even in 2020. So it's really a no, no cause of surprise as to that women were seen as chattel because in England in 1860, and I don't think we can very proudly, even with our Hindu traditions, look back and say that women were given great place of power. If you read the Manushmiti or uh, the Shastras, the women were not exactly liberated individuals who had all the rights. So if you have this structure of patriarchy, and you compress it into a law or a penal code, and then you don't bother mm -hmm. changing it for 160, 150 years, then obviously you will have a structure of law which is patriarchal. Now, of course, this simply reflects the patriarchy, which is systemic in our uh, in our culture and our, our law and in every aspect of our, of our being. So there is mm -hmm. some kind of a interplay, really, between the structures of the law, which uh, first engender patriarchy, then enforce mm. it and then perpetuate it. And society, on the other hand, which uh, glibly gobbles this up. And the most telling example is, as you mentioned, the question of adultery. Now, what was the position on, on the law of adultery? The idea was that a man could sue another man for having had mm. an adulterous relationship with his wife. But not the reverse. But not the reverse, yes. A wife could not sue uh, uh, her husband. The idea is very simple. The idea was that the wife was the property of her husband. Mm. And if another man comes along and sleeps with his wife, he is effectively impinging his proprietary rights over his wife, the sexual rights that the husband claims over his wife. And that's mm. why there's a beautiful chapter by Menaka and Arundhati, Menaka Guruswami and Arundhati Karju in the book, where they take the idea of 
adultery and discuss how the idea of sexuality within marriage has been perpetuated really through the penal code including the marital rape exception right exactly i was going to come to that because they really talk about how the agency does not exist and therefore there's social morality versus constitutional morality and public morality versus constitutional morality absolutely so what is the idea of marital rape and why is it not recognized as as rape because there's a specific exception to it is the idea that uh, women's sexuality within a marriage doesn't does not exist any longer it's one thing to say that a woman belongs to a man which it clearly mm. the the laws implying here so that a woman cannot be raped because you can't rape something that you own that that's one way of looking at it and the other is basically the desexualization and consequently the dehumanization of women within the concept of marriage and mm. uh, so that is that that's a deeply problematic and you're right when you speak of constitutional morality and personal morality is that when the court examined this they mm. said that it doesn't matter what society wants maybe society is patriarchal and of course mm. society is but in a fight between the idea of patriarchal social morality versus the rights of the individual what you called constitutional morality mm-hmm. surely the latter that will triumph because the courts right. of law are not out there to enforce societal norms societal ideas but they're there to enforce the constitutional right. ideals right so in that battle it will have to be undoubtedly the constitution that will triumph as it has in all these cases Mm-hmm. And you know what's very interesting is they make a call in that essay for social morality bending before values of equality and dignity but then sort of we still have controversies like the Tanishkad where it celebrated a diversity and then was pulled down by such immense public pressure arraigned against interfaith union so have we really progressed well obviously we haven't i think you're right this is something i alluded to earlier that one judgment of a supreme court or even a hundred judgments of the supreme court are not going to change society changing society is a very complex task and it will take its own time judgments do their bit right mm. ultimately however we have to take that judgment go as civil society members and try to do our own bit to change society i don't believe just like tweeting once in a while or uh, Uh, moving the court once in a while is sufficient we probably need to be out there in the streets sometimes making our mm. voice heard you need to go out there see and be seen you need to do that effort you need to be an activist but of course not everyone can be an activist shivraj and i think i'm being unfair if i expect everybody mm. to start give up their day job and go to jantar mantar and sit at least like what i call myself i say i'm not an activist but i'm advocate and that's what namata bandari's powerful chapter calls for right a new deal after detailing how the me too movement really blew the lid on the sexual harassment question 30 years after 30 years after a judgment made such such a call for equality in the workplace it is telling isn't it namata bandari's i think was probably one of the most beautiful chapters in the book vishakha was a judgment in the mid 90s as you said it took the parliament 25 years to enact legislation prohibiting sexual harassment at the workplace and this is not something that is controversial i can understand something like decriminalizing homosexuality which would be controversial at the 90s surely no one could say that protecting women at the workplace would be a controversial thing but it was born of a horrible and controversial incident right with bhanwar devi bhanwari devi uh, yes that was a quick case of a gang rape in rajasthan mm. uh, which found its way up to the supreme court ultimately and that's what led to that 
judgment in Vishaka's case being passed. And of course, I don't think Bhavri Devi ever got justice really. No. So that's another, that, that's, that's another sad story. And that, that happens often is that while we get involved in our media and for instance, in the Hathras case and other cases, there'll be a few cases that will catch the public imagination and we'll follow it. Maybe not always f- till the very bitter end. Some of the cases will be followed to the bitter end. But a lot will be dropped off. Yeah, because public memory is so short in India. There's so much happening that is so wrong. The idea is, and this comes back to the, what I was saying earlier, while we may not all be activists, mm-hmm. we all have to be politically aware mm. and politically attuned. And really, politics is not just a matter of voting every five years. It's also important to keep yourself aware and abreast of that which is happening in our midst and keep ourselves out of the echo chambers that we build for ourselves, the cocoons we build for ourselves. Hmm. So we owe it to ourselves to make ourselves aware of, of the politics of the country. And that's why, to some extent, hmm. I wrote this book, the idea that people would be able to become citizens who can participate in a democracy, having some knowledge of what we're talking about. Yeah. As opposed to some gossip that they've picked up from here or there or some tidbit that they picked up or some newspaper. So the new deal that Namita talks of, it's absolutely imperative that it's about time that women get their due. This reminds me of a lovely quote of Ruth Bader Ginsburg when someone asked her that how many women do you think will be sufficient on the Supreme Court? And she said nine. Because <laughs> we quite happily accept the systemic patriarchy and prejudice against women Mm. Uh, we don't question it. In the Supreme Court today, there are only uh, two women judges out of 34. The inequality is in our face for all to see. And mm. yet, it's not a subject of discussion. The Women's Reservation Bill has been hanging fire for the longest time. Why? Oh my God, yes. When I was a young reporter, we were dealing with it in 94, 95, and it's just not come through. And, you know, uh, Saurabh, what I found incredibly tough, and I think that comes from what you said, you mustn't have a surface understanding, you must go in depth, was a penultimate section on sex and religion. From the judgment on triple talaq, the elaboration of the Indian Muslim law and critique of the Sabramala judgment, it is intense and emotive and intricate. Really a case of a clash of public morality with the court's view, right? That's absolutely the case. I think these are particularly uh, emotive issues, right? The clash between a society and uh, homosexuality on the one hand and the views of the conservative majority on the other is one thing. But religion is a deeply, deeply personal thing, right? Mm. Triple Talaq and Sabrimala both relate to religion. And Mm. as a society in India, we are a very conservative, but a very deeply religious society. It's something mm. to take very, very seriously. So when you talk of rights and we suddenly start talking of religion, mm. we start thinking of, oh, but what about the rights of the religion? And I must point out, this is the one instance where the constitution departs from its normal instance of protecting individual rights. So mm. Article 14, 19, 21, the right to equality, right to uh, free speech and uh, freedom and right to personal liberty are all individual rights. Mm. In matters of religion is the only time where communities, i.e. religious minorities in certain instances, have been given rights. Religious Mm. denominations have been given rights because the constitution makers realized that the kind of country we live in is a deeply religious country. And Mm. issues of religion, therefore, 
are inevitably very emotive uh, because people feel that when you talk about religion you are affecting not merely doing a social cause or you talking of something else people believe that you're talking to them so when you are mm. talking of reforming muslim personal law by the abolition of triple talaq members of the muslim community will feel that you're attacking their religion and of course we live mm. in a certain societal context now where that fear may not be unfounded right mm. they may be justified sometimes in thinking ignoring of course uh, the great travesty and injustice that has been meted out to muslim women often by members of the majority community so shabano judgment which is reversed by parliament was done by a hindu majority parliament right it wasn't done by mm. muslims so uh, muslim women have been discriminated against not just by uh, members of their own community but by the majority community as well but the point as you said is right uh, when there's something as deep as religion the clash becomes more intense it becomes more personal that but that's to be expected and the same thing with shabrimala the idea of uh, their faith people believe that their their faith has been defiled if a woman mm. of menstruating age walks into their temple uh, people firmly firmly believe that they will have to be and since i said that the constitution protects rights of the community and rights rights of religion i think sometimes we take an over simplistic views of the fight between religion and the individual always putting the individual above i think in the case of religion and an individual a most subtle balance shivraj has to be drawn because mm. ultimately if you always pit the right of the individual above that of the religion on the grounds of rationality you are basically saying religion just isn't worth it anymore because religion is not always a rational set of beliefs right mm-hmm. religion is almost per se a matter of faith and hence beyond rationality so if we have to start pitting individualism versus religion on some kind of a test of rationality we are on a slippery slope inevitably religion will lose and the impact of that of course in the long term will be that mm. the religious rights that a minority has Hmm. will be completely done away with so hmm. I, i i think a lot has to be said about a delicate balancing task mm-hmm. and i really hope people go through this section at least more than once because it has such intricacy and and details that we weren't even aware of and i think justice sikri's ultimate chapter should be made compulsory reading for anyone understanding why human dignity is the only measure to unshackle us right soro really i think if there's one chapter which gives a idea of the underlying thread in the entire book is the chapter on dignity by justice sikri because what he says is that ultimately what the court is aiming to do is to uphold the dignity of every individual hmm. in drawing howsoever or whatsoever balance that it's trying to do in the case of sabrimala or in the case of triple talaq on the one hand in the case of the me too movement in the case of 377 transgenders all these issues are ultimately about trying to find the innate dignity the innate humanity in the ed- individual just the sikri talks about kant and kantian philosophy uh, so those of you who maybe want a little primer in reading about kantian philosophy can go and see uh, what he says about about the innate value of dignity when we make a society where the dignity of every individual is recognized appreciated and the legal structures are such that we aim to maximize the dignity of each individual we mm. end up with a better more just more humane and a happier society and certainly a society that 
I would like to live in and I hope our children would like to do. Now returning to the issues that underpin the book, decriminalization of section 377. What does the future look like? Is same-sex marriage the next step? Well, you know, that's uh, often a question that is split the queer community, I think. I find mm. And that was going to be my next question because you know anti-discrimination laws protection rights for the more vulnerable I think activists in the queer community say marriage is a privilege of a few and that these must come first You see so to them I'd say that activism going to courts it's not a zero sum game mm. It's not that if you've had a lollipop today yeah my young child you can't have the cake I'm mm. sorry I'm a gay person I want that lollipop and I want that cake So you there's no point fighting and say that let's not have same sex marriage let's ask for a anti discrimination code I don't see why we can't have both straight people have both don't they they have marriage and they have anti discrimination codes why can't I so right. if if that be the case to come back to your question on therefore on same sex marriage is that the next thing Well it is the next thing just as well just the same way as I hope an anti discrimination code would be the next thing and I don't believe it's correct for activists to say that marriage is a privilege of the few right see now activists oppose the concept of marriage in two separate fronts one is that it's going to detract us from our focus to mm. have already answered saying no we have enough bandwidth with us to look at both anti discrimination as well as same sex marriage but there's mm. a more problematic issue that some people take with same sex marriage the idea of uh, some kind of heteronormativity that is innate in the concept of marriage and hierarchy mm. that is innate in the concept of marriage well the solution to that is to reform the institution of marriage not to deny it to those people who have already been denied most other rights right and you know sort of it's interesting because when you say that as we speak there are four different petitions now right which are challenging different types of of marriage acts at the high court level in delhi and kerala there's one by abhijit uh, ayer which is pending in the delhi high court which challenges the hindu marriage act more than challenge i think he believes that the hindu marriage act already allows hindu people to get married <laughs> we'll find out what the court thinks about that soon enough then there are petitions filed by uh, ankita and kavita and uh, by a couple in uh, kerala asking for recognition of the, under the special marriage act of same sex partners and then there is a petition by two men from uh, an indian citizen in the us and an oci card holder seeking recognition of marriages registered abroad under the foreign marriages act so there are these petitions th- that are pending and of course this will transcend really the issue of personal law because while leaving abhijit's petition aside if the special marriage act is construed to include same sex marriages then people of the same sex can choose to get married under the special marriage act even if their own religious laws don't permit them so mm. this need not entail any tinkering with personal laws i think it's important to have a recognition of same sex marriage as a secular idea and courts providing for that and finally we're all about leaving listeners with something to really think about over the weekend given what we've spoken about so extensively what is your one message sorov how about two messages the first one is a slightly more <laughs> lighter message which is it's not a very expensive book go out and buy it right that's message number 1 but message number 2 which is probably more important and which is something to do with it 
is I think it's important for people, and I'm, I've said this before, so I, I'll just repeat it, is for people to become political, for people to become empathetic, for people to put themselves in the shoes of the other to see how that shoe bites, really. I think you have to stand up and fight, not only because you are affected yourself, you have to stand up and fight because it's the right thing to do. You have to stand up and fight because your friends, your family, your cousin, your nephew, your aunt, your uncle deserve the same freedoms that you take for granted. Mm. And you need to stand up and fight because we all wish to live in a country where there is justice for all, freedom for everyone and indignity for none. Because that is the India I hope to live in. That is the India that was promised to me in 1950 when the constitution was framed. That's an India that is still very, very far away. But I do know, Shivraj, in my heart of hearts, that that is an India that we can achieve if we all work together. Saurabh Kipal, thank you ever so much for being part of this conversation. Thank you for having me, Shivraj. It's a pleasure speaking to you always. Introduce us to similar folks you'd like featured by writing to me at shivraj at brevis.in or even by sending me a voice message. That's right, we're all about hearing from you. You can send your voice messages on plus 91-962-547-5442. I repeat, plus 91-962-547-5442. Or you could also send me your number and I can add you to my subscriber list on WhatsApp. Don't forget to keep a lookout for the next big weekend playlist episode. Have a great weekend and the rest of your week.